from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. The only African American orthodontist in the city passed away at a young age. He's 49. I had talked with him uh, maybe weeks before about joining his practice when I graduate, which is going to be the next year, next June. And, uh, and when he did pass away, his widow came to my chief and said and told him that, uh, that her husband, her ex-widow, well, her husband had talked with me and uh, if there's a chance that I could take over the practice. Well, I was in my third year. Most orthodontic programs at that time were only two years. Uh, Einstein was three years, and we, we felt that uh, we had some advantages there because we've, we've seen more patients in the average two-year program. And the chief came to me and said, Ben, uh, I didn't want you to come and take over at practice. This is out of very, and we're going to let you do it, but you got to finish up your residency here. Dr. Benjamin W. Nero, DMD, author of That's the Way It Was, a memoir. Dr. Nero has been a very fortunate man. Growing up on his father's farm in Greenwood, Mississippi, during the most segregated time in this country's history, he has managed to have a remarkable 45-plus year career as an orthodontist. Now semi-retired, Dr. Nero was the first African-American student and the first African-American to graduate from the University of Kentucky's College of Dentistry and the first African-American intern orthodontic resident at the Albert Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia. In his book, Dr. Nero writes about family bond by tradition, loyalty, love, and hard work. Also, he writes about the deep sense of responsibility and unshakable faith and confidence his parents instilled in him and his four brothers and sisters. I'm Johnny O. Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, That's the Way It Was, a memoir with Dr. Benjamin W. Nero, DMD, Part 2, in Black America. A lot of the inspiration for this also, John, was from my for my patients. Patients, uh, right? You know, when I was working full time, they would I would tell them and get on them about how they were acting. They say, "What did you do?" And then I tell them, and they'd go to college <laughs> and come back and say, uh, "They go to college and come back and say, well, I was talking to one of my professors about you, and he said he said you should write your story." And uh, then that's when I I started doing it, and uh, I'm very happy that I did. Dr. Benjamin W. Nero, DMD was born into a world where African-Americans knew their place. In Greenwood, Mississippi at the time, there were two different communities, one black and one white, and seldom did the two mix. Dr. Nero's grandfather, John Tyler Nero, a free slave, purchased over time 400 acres, in which his father inherited 41 acres, so their condition was somewhat different from the other African-Americans in their community. If ever a term was more appropriate, it was, it takes a village to raise a child. Out of the 49 graduating students of the all-black class of 1956 Broad Street High School in Greenwood, Mississippi, 30 went on to graduate from college, and a number of them went on to earn advanced professional degrees. By the way, the noted actor Morgan Freeman is a product of Greenwood, Mississippi. In his book, That's the Way It Was, Dr. Nero writes about the community and how it shaped the man he became. On today's program, we conclude our conversation. My mother told me uh, when I was a teenager, she said, Ben, if I didn't love your daddy so much and wanted to honor my vows, I would have left, left the first week. And they stayed together for 54 years before he passed. Give us an idea of what was life like growing up on the farm, considering that 
if you live on a farm, there's work to do all the time. All the time, yeah. I think I was telling one of my patients yesterday, I said, I think I was the only guy in my class who hated for school to be out because as soon as school was out, <laughs> I had to go right. to the cotton field and do that. Uh, yeah, you were, there was always something to do. There were animals to manage, cotton to pick, or cotton to chop, or uh, uh, gardens to to to, uh, to to raise, and it was an ongoing thing. And um, we had to, you know, we had to do our chores or else we didn't, get certain other privileges, and this was sun up, sun down. We'd come home from school, we'd walk home that three miles, and we would go in the house and change our clothes. We would uh, get a bite to eat, and uh, then we'd go out in the field and do whatever season it was, either picking cotton or chopping cotton until the sun went down. And our parents were out there doing it at the same time, and maybe some other helpers. And then at the end of the day, when the sun went down and doctors, uh, we would come in and and uh, and do our homework, and we had to study by kerosene lamps. We didn't have electricity at that time, most of that time. So my younger sister and I had a lamp at one table. My older sister and my older brother had a lamp at another table, and my mother and father had a lamp. They would read their Bible or read the paper, and uh, that's uh, that's the way the, the the things were at that time. And then once you did that, you take a little bit of a a bath, and then you'd go to bed and ready to get up the next morning at uh, maybe 5 o'clock and get ready to start all over again. Well, you had it somewhat easier since you was the, the last born, but David Clyde and Mary Jean and your other sisters, they had a pretty standard routine, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah, they did. They were the ones, however, uh, I think uh, my dad my, my dad never wanted us to be farmers. Mm-hmm. He saw it coming that a small farmer was not going to make it, and a small black farmer was certainly not going to make it. So he had, he had us, he wanted his boys, one to be a physician, one to be a pharmacist, and one to be a lawyer, and come right back there in Greenwood and practice. <laughs> he wanted the girls to go to college and find a nice, uh, gentlemen and Mary. Yeah, the older kids um, had it a little bit rougher than I did. However, I saw uh, I saw my my parents in there. My mother was forty when I was born. My daddy was fifty, mm-hmm. and I was a um, I was a surprise child. And uh, I saw them uh, wearing down more so than the others did. And I uh, I picked up a lot of things and did try to do more and as much as I could to uh, to keep them from having to do so much because they worked pretty hard. And um, and as I said early on in the book, one of the primary objectives in my life was to leave the farm, to get out and to get, to get an education, get into a profession and build my parents a nice, comfortable home while they were living so they could enjoy it because they, they couldn't do that for us because they spent so much time spent working and, and getting uh, education funds for the children. I was the only one that they didn't have to pay to go to college. I had a football scholarship, and uh, I was fortunate for that. I understand. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with Dr. Benjamin W. Nero, Sr., DMD, and author of That's the Way It Was, a memoir. Dr. Nero, you talked about high school, Broad Street High School, and how— the white high school, Greenwood High School, you all never interacted athletically or any other time? Absolutely not. Yeah, that was total segregation. Uh, we were on one side of town, they were on the other. Uh, I had classmates who lived 
sort of in the town on the outskirts of town. Mm-hmm. They had to walk past the white school every day to come over to the black school. Uh, when they were when they were walking past the white school, some incidences would happen sometimes, but not so much. And when they got into the center of Greenwood and just on the outskirts of Greenwood heading for the black school, that's where there were no more sidewalks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they had to walk in the streets and uh, dodge the cars. And we had no, basically in the, in the, in the black section of the city, there were no sidewalks. And uh, it was just, a, it was, it, I look back on it now, John, and, and uh, the title of the book is That's the Way It Was. And that is the way it was. But when I look back, it frightens me sometimes as to, to the way things were and how things could have been a lot worse had we not uh, realized, I guess, where we were, we were um, conditioned, I guess, to mm-hmm. the circumstances. And, uh, you know, you just very seldom got what might be said out of line. Uh, we, we knew what the resp- our responsibilities were, and, uh, and we went that way. Uh, being that my parents were landowners, we didn't have a lot of problem with uh, others the way uh, farm, itinerant farmers did. So we were sort of spared of that. Uh, but it was a difficult time to live. And we were only eight miles away from Emmett Till when Emmett Till got killed. And uh, that was my junior year in high school. And uh, what a devastating blow that was for us. But uh, I, I spoke with a classmate of mine last year. Mm-hmm. who still lives down there. And I asked her, I said, did we talk about Emmett Till's that and all of that in class she says you know what ben i don't think so i know our parents just say don't say and it don't talk about it and that's the way it was you know you just hushed up and uh because you know that could be times where you have classmates who go missing you have no idea where they've gone that you don't hear from them anymore and those kind of things were happening back in those days your brother david got caught up in that kind of situation yeah. didn't he yes he did yeah some lady, a white lady, said that uh, he had made some remarks toward her, or, or my parents didn't like to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I, the, from what I got, that she said that he had said something to her or, or did something, and, and uh, I think my mother told me that it was the lady who, my brother was a, was a uh, really a sh- very bright, good-looking man, about six foot three or so, and uh, a lot of personality and smart, and uh he, I think he said to her mother, she tried something with him and he uh, refused. And uh, I think that's what sort of turned him off. So a friend of my dad who had happened to be, ha- happened to be white came out and said, David, uh, there's a rumor going on in town that uh, he called my brother, little David, that little David uh, uh, tried to, did something to some white woman over here. And if I were you, I'd get him out of town. And uh, so they had to figure out a way to get him someplace so that I imagine they would be watching the bus station in my hometown. So uh, my parents never liked to talk about it, but I kind of figured out they went to another smaller town and got him out of there. And he went to Washington, D.C. and lived with uh, cousins. And then he went into the NYA, I think the National Youth Organization at that time. Then he went into military and stayed in there for a long time. Came out as a captain after the right. war. Right. I wanted to ask you, do you all still have post office box 363? Yes, we do. That's what my grandfather had it. <laughs> it's there, there, 363. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So it's, uh, it was a, it was a, uh, an interesting life, uh, John. And, uh, you know, that was just could have, it, a lot of other things could have happened. And I just thank God that my, 
my mother and father had the presence of mind to be able to negotiate their, themselves and us away from terrible circumstances that could have occurred. Uh, can I just chat with you? Well, talk about the, our neighbors. On one side was the Conleys, and they were people who were probably eighth, I mean, uh, had probably graduated from high school. On the other side were the Bufords, who mm-hmm. probably had not, uh, the adults in that house had not attended high school. And they didn't particularly like each other. And we live right between them. So we were the, the mediators there when things would come up. But they were, they were, they were, they respected my parents because my parents were, they considered highly educated compared to them. And my parents treated them with respect and, and uh, they treated us the same way. We still uh, couldn't go in their front door when we, if we visited them, which we very seldom did. If I and my friend Nell, who, who was a very good friend of mine, she was a year older than me. Uh, we should play together all the time. And uh, when she, when I would, if I had to go over to her house, I would have to go in the back door. When she came to my house, she came in the front door. She used to come and have meals with us, you know, weekly and daily sometimes because her mother was and father were working outside the home. The other, the Bufords were the same thing. You, if you went to that house, which we very seldom did, uh, you had to go in the back door. And uh, when you, uh, I think when they went a when, when a white girl got to be about 16, you were start. You're supposed to start calling her Miss something, Miss Nell or Miss Betty. But we never, we never did that. And I, I don't know. We, they never expected us to do it for some, for some reason. But those were the, the kind of things that went on. And, and as I tell you before, I look back and wonder how we, um, how we kind of survived it. I had a, um, there's a, a, um, a magazine in Mississippi called Delta. And the CEO of the magazine, um, I wrote him and asked him if he'd be interested in, uh, in my putting my book in there as a book to read. And he said, yes, I would. So I went down there and uh, he, um, he did put it in two, two, for two months. And, uh, and I noticed what he said uh, about me, Dr. Nero did this in this Jim Corden environment. He came out without bitterness and anger. And I think I hadn't thought about it that way, but uh, we were never taught to be bitter or, or angry or call people names and that kind of stuff. We were never taught that. And uh, and I'm kind of happy you recognize that because I didn't come out with bitterness. I came out with some fear, with the lack of understanding of certain things. And, and um, But our parents kept us a bit above that. When you graduated from high school in 1956, there were 40-something individuals in your class, and you said 30 went on to obtain college degrees? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, several went on for uh, graduate degrees, yeah. Uh, John, we didn't have too many choices. You could stay there and maybe become a school teacher, but you had to get a, a degree to do that. You could pick cotton and chop cotton, but you were only making $3 a day or $2 a hundred pounds. So we had to, we had to move on. And, uh, and most of us, most of us did it. And it was due to our parents and, and those wonderful teachers that we had in elementary and middle and high school. I don't know where they came from. It's like they came from heaven. <laughs> you know, they just dropped down there and said, this is what you're going to do. And you're going to do it as long as you're in this school. And we listened my schoolmate, Morgan Freeman, one of those people, and he was a guy who used to run around campus, and he was a, a prankster and doing things he shouldn't have done, and, and one of Mrs. Williams said to him, you know what, I, mean, I forget what she said, she's going to make him into a, an actor or something, and she started him in drama, and uh, look at him now. 
That was the next question I was going to ask you about Morgan Freeman. I think he graduated a year be prior to you. Year, be year before me, yes. Mm -hmm. How did you break and, uh, your leg in your junior year in high school? I kind of missed that. Yeah, I was playing football. And, I uh, yeah, I knew you were playing football. Was it at practice or was that the game? No, it was in the real game. We were playing uh, Vicksburg, Bowman High in Vicksburg, Mississippi, one of the top big age schools. We had a we had a conference, big eight conference. There were eight black schools that we, that we uh, that played against, uh, seven played against. But anyhow, we were playing in our, my hometown. It was raining that night, and uh, I played quarterback. And well, back in those days, you had to almost be a 60-minute man, but they used to get me out of there uh, often as they could because I didn't like playing defense. So <laughs> so this particular time, we were uh, up against the goal line stand there against Vicksburg, and they were tough. And I was in a linebacker position. I had never played linebacker in my life, but that's where I had, had to be because of the closeness of the goal line. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a single-wing offense, and and uh, they ran everything toward me, not because I was there, but I, I, I looked up and I saw, I thought I saw about 15 guys coming my way blocking. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground, and my leg was, was twisted in a, in, a, in a position where I knew that I was – I had some bad news there. And next to the last game of the season. And uh, I just put my mother on a bus to go to California that morning. It was on a Friday. And uh, I went to the hospital, and they set my leg, and I uh, stayed in the hospital for about a week. And on my way home um, in the ambulance, by the way, my dad never wanted me to play football. He wanted me to be in the academics all the time. And one of the coaches talked me into it. On my way home in the ambulance with him, he says, Ben, I want you to get back out there next year and show them you can take it. I almost fell off of the gurney I was on when he <laughs> said that. I could not believe I said, are you serious? Absolutely. I want you back out there, and I want you to show those guys you can take it. He didn't want to see his uh, his baby boy, his last child, defeated that boy. And you know what, John? I think that has, that has traveled with me ever since that particular day. You know, I think it is one of the best decisions he could have made. And I think he knew it at that time, too. So I went back out and played the next year, and uh, and uh, then I went to I sort of I went to Tougaloo in Mississippi, but that's kind of a long story. And I, I ended up going to Kentucky State a couple of years later and played there for what well, I played there for three years. My three first years. year, I didn't didn't have a great relationship with the coach. Um, and who was the coach? Tell us who the coach was now. Yeah, coach was uh, Joe Gillen. He was the <laughs> father. <laughs> he was the father of. Um, uh, Gilliam, who played quarterback with Pittsburgh Steelers, right uh, back in the day, right right around Bradshaw's time. Anyhow, little, this little guy was about seven or eight years old then, and he was out there asking me after practice, come pass to him and kick to him, and then I should do that with him. Well, and, see, that's... Uh, but the coach, pardon me. Now go ahead and finish the statement because I I want to ask this other question. Go ahead. Yeah, he would ask me to, to play catch with him after practice you know he he wanted to play quarterback too you know and i was a quarterback there and, and i was teach him how to punt how to hold the ball and how to run and throw it he turned out to be a, a fantastic quarterback went to tennessee state first right backing up to before tougaloo you took an aptitude test with another individual i don't know if it's clarence or not and Charles you blackman. okay yeah blackman and you all yeah. were admitted early if you so chose to attend Tougaloo, but as you say, your dad told you you need to go back and, and, and your yeah. senior year and, and finish that. The other thing was is that one of your first lucky breaks is that when you were at Tougaloo and then you eventually transferred to 
the University of, of, of Kentucky, uh, assistant coach. No, Kentucky State. Kentucky State, excuse me. Assistant yeah. coach knew the new coach, which allowed you to have an opportunity to play quarterback. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I um, I called my uh, coach that was, that coached me in high school. I said, Coach, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I was going to school at Pepperdine out there, and I had to work. I was working the graveyard shift and, and trying to keep up with those California kids in the classroom, and it wasn't working out. And uh, I had a couple of buddies that were going to school over Southern Cal, uh, Willie Woods and Don Buford and those guys were mm-hmm. football players there. And we should play together in the park in the summer. And I said, why don't you come on over here, man? You can, uh, you know, you can, you, well, with your skills, you ought to be able to, you know, to, to latch on. But they didn't realize I, um, I, I still didn't have 100% mobility in my leg that I had broken. And uh, I had a good arm. I had a good toe. I could kick the ball a mile and uh, punting. Uh, and I went over there, and the uh, coach said to me that he, he didn't think that I could fit into that program. I wasn't fast enough. I did some sprints and I think the water board was faster than I was. I didn't have mobility in, in that leg. So I went to, I called my coach, uh, high school coach at Kentucky. He was an assistant coach there at Kentucky State. He says, come on, I know what you can do. So I went there, and uh, and we were, you know, practicing hard and all that. And I was always the first guy on the field, the last one off. So one day he had this particular practice technique called bull in the ring. Right. And, uh, you, you know, you'd, you'd, they'd put you inside of a ring of about, four or five snarling, big, mean, crazy linemen. <laughs> I remember that you're very lying, well. Yeah, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're lying there with a ball, and he's already told who somebody to nail you, you know. And then he blows the whistle. You don't whistle. You don't know where the, 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 the guy's coming from. And, uh, and I saw my homeboy get his ankle broken right there that particular day. And I said, you know what, I'm not there. I've never done this. Why don't I ask quarterback to play bull in the ring? So he gave my name came up. I said, coach, I don't play bull in the ring. Mm-hmm. Well, son, if you can practice for me, you can play for me. And I said, okay, and I left the field. And uh, I was I was heartbroken. Now this is another bad thing is happening. And I called my parents. They said, well, stay there. Stay there. We'll see what we can do. We talk to your sisters and their brothers. We'll come up with something. And luckily... In, in high school, I'd done some drama along right. with Morgan, and uh, I went and I was I was going home from lunch one day and went by the student union building. There was a, a sign up that said uh, "Try out today for um, a three act play." I said, "Hmm, maybe I should give that a shot." And I went in and read for it and got the second male lead role uh, lead role in it. Got a scholarship in drama for a year. Now, what was the play? Uh, now, tell us the play. No, it's uh, what? Jeez. Oh, I don't have the book in front of me. Because it was a famous actor. And I'll yeah, come Sinatra, up. Old Sinatra. Old Sinatra. Sinatra exactly. Movie. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Sinatra. What's the name of it? I'm, I'm sure my age here. <laughs> no, and I had it highlighted uh, on the page, but I, I'll get that. But before we run out of time, uh, Dr. Nero, what sparked that initial interest in dentistry? My dad wanted me to be a physician, and my one of my high school coaches left coaching and went into dental school at Meharry. And uh, I talked with him about it because I like science all the time. I said, yeah, I think you would enjoy this. He said, I'm enjoying it tremendously, you know. So I kept chatting with him, and he was pushing me toward it. And uh, went to after I graduated from Kentucky State, I went and worked in the dental school for a year and found out what it was all about. And the guys in there were encouraging me. Oh, you shouldn't be working in a laboratory. You should go to the dental school. You go ahead and you're a plot. So I went and applied and uh, got in and uh, never regretted it. 
telling one of my patients today how much I love what I do. Go ahead, John. I'm sorry. The name of the play was The Tender Trap. The Tender Trap. There we go. <laughs> Old Frank Sinatra movie. Yeah. And I had the second male role in there and uh, got a scholarship in drama for a year. And things just worked out for me. Uh, as you said early in the, in the talk here, I have been blessed. Before we run out of time, again, a couple of more minutes, Dr. Nero. You're in medical, you're at the Einstein School. Uh, you're going mm-hmm. through your internship. A mm-hmm. dentist passed away. His wife wants you to take his practice. How right. did you manage the two? Plus, the people at Einstein had invested a lot in you, and they weren't going to allow you to fail. That's, that's very true. Yeah, that was a, the only uh, the only African-American orthodontist in the city passed away at a young age. He's 49 years old. Had right. a heart attack. I had talked with him uh, maybe weeks before about joining his practice when I graduate, which is going to be the next year, next June. And, uh, and when he did pass away, his widow came to my chief and said and told him that, uh, that her husband, her ex-widow, her, her well, her husband had talked with me. And uh, if there's a chance that I could take over the practice. Well, I was in my third year. Most orthodontic programs at that time were only two years. Uh, Einstein was three years. And we, we felt that uh, we had some advantages there because we've, we've seen more patients than the average two-year program. Mm-hmm. And, he, and the, the, the chief came to me and said, Ben, uh, I didn't want you to come and take over at practice. This is Atterbury, and we're going to let you do it, but you got to finish up your residency here. Right. And I said, oh, my goodness, boy, look at this, will you? So I used to go and down to that office. I come in to the hospital in the morning and work up my cases about 7 o'clock, present them, catch the subway at noon, go downtown with, with a sandwich and have lunch and start my private practice at 1 o'clock to 6 and go back to the hospital at 9 to work up a little bit. I did this from September to the next June. And uh, what a blessing. What a blessing. And I, um, I took over the, uh, well, I was in the orthodontic uh, mm-hmm. uh, residency at the time and uh, took over his practice and things. It just started to, to mushroom. And uh, uh, I, I just, I look back on it sometimes, but sometimes it brings tears to my eyes. But mm-hmm. I, uh, I worked hard. I worked hard. And uh, I think that uh, I, just, I just know that I've been terribly blessed. It's an interesting read. It's an interesting life, I think. And I didn't think of it that way, uh, John, at the beginning. I just wanted to honor my parents, honor my sisters and brothers, honor my school teachers, because I think they did so much in my case to get me to where I am today. And uh, I I feel very blessed again. Are you are you glad now that your son prompted you to write this book? Absolutely. Absolutely. I am. I uh, he. He's he's one of my uh, top, I guess. Cheer. He's leads the cheerleading squad for me. He he likes to hear my stories, and uh, he knows as much about it as anybody, as almost as I do, because I've told him so much. And a lot of the inspiration for this also, John, was from my for my patients. Patients, uh, right? Yeah, you know, when I was working full time, they would I would tell them and get on them about how they were acting. They say, "What did you do?" And I would tell them, <laughs> and they'd go to college and come back and say, "Uh." They go to college and come back and say, "Well, I was talking to one of my professors about you, and he said he said you should write your story." And uh, then that's when I I started doing it, and uh, I'm very happy that I did. Dr. Benjamin W. Nero, D.M.D., author of "That's the Way It Was: A Memoir." If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future in Black America programs, 
email us at nblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.